Here we go. Roll video. I think anybody creating something new must have an adventure. It's not cinema, it's something else. My advice to a young filmmaker is to make a movie every week. The whole bag of movies can be learned in about a day and a half. But suspense is essentially an emotional process. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta make films, you gotta make it and get a scene. Cinema for me is a world of when I dream. Welcome to Behind the Slate, everybody. I am your host, Aaron Strand. I hope you're enjoying our Melvin Van Peebles series, where we are exploring not only the life and career of one of cinema's most badass independent filmmakers, but also are doing a deep dive into the history of black representation in American drama, going all the way back to the 1800s. If you haven't listened, be sure to check out those shows. But today is very special. First of all, I am podcasting from my personal favorite cinema. I'm on location at the historic Plaza Theater right here in Atlanta, Georgia, to talk with the owner of this theater, Christopher Escobar. Christopher Escobar is basically the king of Atlanta cinema. In 2011, at the age of 25, he became the executive director of the Atlanta Film Society, which is a media arts nonprofit organization that provides education, resources, and produces the Atlanta Film Festival, one of the best film festivals in the country, if not the world. When I was 25, I was living in my parents' house, (laughs) just as a point of comparison. He has been involved with Georgia Production Partnership, the Rialto Center for the Arts, and Georgia State University's College of the Arts. And in 2017, he purchased the Plaza Theater, Atlanta's oldest continually operating cinema and the only independently owned cinema inside the Atlanta perimeter. Now, as a Hispanic American, that means that Chris is one of the few minority theater owners, independent theater owners in the country which is, and this place is a true pillar of the Atlanta film community. He shepherded the plaza through the pandemic, and with upcoming expansions, this 84-year-old theater is poised to become more successful than ever before. And if that wasn't enough, just last week, Chris announced at the Atlanta Jewish Film Festival that he was purchasing the Terra Cinema, another historic art house theater here in the city that just closed in November 2022. Christopher Escobar... How does it feel to be living the cinephile dream? <laughs> uh, uh, it's exciting. Although I, I, I feel like I do need to correct two things for the benefit of your listener. One, I think King of Atlanta Cinema is way too lofty. So we just need to bring <laughs> that way down. I would accept Jester. Oh. Um, and then second thing is, uh, well, first of all, you have a great last name, which is the name of a terrific historic uh, theater here in the Metro in Marietta, the Strand Theater. Yeah, that's right. Um, so... Uh, so that's a, that's a fun little side note I, I wanted to throw in there. Sadly, no relation. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. Still got to go. Claim it. Claim it. Okay. 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 Yes. <laughs> so thank you. Glad, glad to be here. Uh, and thanks thanks so much for having me and the work you're doing in profiling, you know, such an important part of our American culture. Yeah, absolutely. Let's, let's start with the Terra because when I saw the news on Instagram just a few days ago, I literally shouted with excitement in my house. I mean, because I love the Terra. I can think of all the movies that I saw there. It's just, and it's such a great 
uh, place. I, I'm going to give like a little brief spiel about the history. So the Terra was originally built by the Lowe's Cinemas in 1968 as a freestanding single screen theater on Cheshire Bridge Road. It underwent several renovations, eventually expanding into a four screen art house theater under the direction and ownership of George LaFont. And then in 2022, it was bought by Regal Cinemas, uh, the chain who operated the theater until to the horror of Atlanta cinephiles and cinephiles everywhere. They just announced that they were closing it in November. So how did you come to save this theater? Well, um, you know, the Terra being not only the second oldest cinema in Atlanta, um, and then one of only three art house theaters in the Metro, it's definitely always been one I've been aware of and cared about. You know, I've, you know, appropriately enough, the first time I ever went there was 10 years ago for the Atlanta Jewish Film Festival. That's why I thought it was sort of a perfect full circle. Regal ended up with it only because they they took, you know, it's a not an interesting nod to all of your Chaplin episodes, but uh, they took over all of United Artists. Right. So so they kind of inherited it and it was sort of making enough money, very, very different kind of operation. They don't really do art house theaters, but they were like, okay, it's fine. Let's just keep it an autopilot. But it wasn't something that they sought out specifically. So they just sort of, it's a step kid that they got with this new, new relationship. So, um, you know, I knew during the pandemic, it was especially not doing well. I mean, it was really one of the last, all the Regal theaters were one of the last to reopen. Um, we, we really had very little closure here at the plaza. We, um, we closed in March, just like everybody else, but we launched a drive-in first. Um, and then we didn't reopen inside until six months later in September. But, um, but the, the terror was on and off open, close, open, close for almost two years. So I was like, okay, it can't be doing well. Yeah. And then obviously news of, of Regal at large having bankruptcy and all that. So it's been on my radar of like, what's going to happen with that? Yeah, are, you know, is it going to, you know, are they going to close? Is it going to be torn down? Cause there's so much for anyone who's not super familiar with that area. There's a lot of development, you know, a lot of four story buildings going up with retail on the bottom, condos or apartments on top, you know, very kind of <laughs> cut and paste, cut and paste. Mixed use. Yes. And it's part of what we're seeing, you know, throughout a lot of Atlanta. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that's, that's the wave. And so, you know, that was my concern. And certainly when news came out, everyone assumed, oh, the property wants to close it and tear it down. And that actually was not the case at all. Really? It wasn't their, they, yeah, it wasn't their choice. They, you know, they, they kind of were hearing about it along with everyone else. So it was really, it's, 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 it's a really interesting, you know, look at what's happening nationwide, which is Regal's closing lots of locations. I think there's something like north of 60 locations now. That was just the first one in Atlanta. And it hurt more than some random, you know, insert Regal name, stadium, 16, 24, you know, whatever, multiplex that people go to just out of convenience. Because we've had it for over half a century. It's 55 years old this year. It's actually the last movie palace to open in Atlanta. Oh, wow. 1968. And then really after that is when the emergence of the of the multiplex started coming. It, it didn't even go 10 years without going, okay, yeah, we need to cut this in half yeah. and have two screens. And then LaFont added the extension and he made it three screens. And then United Artists split one of the halves again and added the fourth. And so it, it it's, you know, kind of would go almost every 10 years and go, and go, oh, cut it up more, up, oh, cut it up more. <laughs> cut it up. Yeah, it was the last movie palace. And for those of you who aren't familiar with the term, movie palace is really super large single screen cinema, over a thousand seats, you know, so 
in Atlanta, we had the Paramount, the Lowe's Grand, we had the Rialto, which is still around, but it's not primarily cinema. Yeah. And then of course the Fox Theater. The Fox Theater is really the last movie palace that still exists as it did, even though they these days primarily do live performance. They don't really do film as much, um, but they do a select number of times. But the last one to be built and open was the Lowe's Terra. And it was, you know, so at a movie palace level, when you're talking about that big, not only talking about capacity, but that also speaks to the finishes, the, you know, it's, it tends to be a more luxury experience. Con, you know, compare that to a far more common uh, neighborhood theater, like the Plaza, right. it would be a lot more casual, a lot more humble, um, you know, m- modest, more ticket, modest ticket pricing. People would go to those more often because they were you're the theater you could walk to or a short drive to the real special occasion would be for a movie starting they would start on Peachtree you know or or even with the Terra uh, Cheshire Bridge and then after that they would move to the neighborhood houses literally that actual film print would move from one to then the other right right so um so it holds a special place for Atlanta uh and I've I've known some of that when you know this whole prospect of could the future of the Terra I be involved somehow in it came up. I started diving a lot into the archives and learning a lot more and discovering a whole bunch more. But I'd, I'd known it was the second oldest. I'd known it was an art house. I'd known it was a Lowe's. I'd known some of that. Knew it was um, where Atlanta was introduced to Star Wars for the first time, um, which it's it's been the place where Atlanta has been introduced to a lot of films, but that's probably the biggest one, uh, certainly from a franchise standpoint, yeah. um, but it's where Atlanta first watched Blair Witch Project, first watched you know a bunch of these huge indie titles, foreign titles, particularly over the last 20 and 30 years. Um, and that art house tradition, George LaFont started in the 80s. So what are your plans for the future of the Terra? And, and how will it sort of be differentiated from the Plaza? That's a great question. So, um, and for those who aren't aware, there was a brief period where the Plaza and the Terra were siblings, where they were both owned and run by George Lafont. Right. And um, and before either of those uh, chapters, neither of them were an art house, right? So the way most Atlantans know the Terra, if you do, is as an art house. And that's where I go to see different movies, right? Foreign films, indie films, Oscar contenders, that kind of stuff. Um, and, and, the, and the Plaza's been an art house now for 40 years this year. Um, but, that both, but the credit to both of those go to George Lafont. And before George Lafont, Either of these were just playing whatever run-of-the-mill movies, frankly, um, that almost anybody else was playing. And so that's an important marker in both of those histories. And so the way we're going to run it is what what they'll have in common is they will be the two oldest cinemas in Atlanta. They'll be some of the same management will will oversee and run both of them. Um, What we do here at the Plaza today, which is we always are leaning into a mix of old and new, Right, yeah. both in programming, um, aesthetically, uh, architecturally, from a branding standpoint, the food, like everything should either be vintage and nostalgic, should be local in Atlanta, or should be artisan in the same way that some of the films we're, we're playing are. And so, um, but what we're not going to change is uh, that the the kinds of uh, content that people love about the Terra that we're definitely going to preserve, and in some ways the two represent kind of different spectrums of the art house range um, with some overlap. Um, So like very specifically, like we were both playing Tar, right? The Kate Blanchett film recently. Um, But but most of the films that that the Plaza or the Terra have played over the last five years, there's maybe a 
10 or 15% overlap. And that'll still be true. There won't be a ton of overlap between the two. Uh, what will be different at the Terra in terms of programming is that it won't only be new movies. So we're going to start to uh, dive more into the classics. And LaFont did that more. That hasn't been true the last, you know, basically since the United Artists days in, mo in large part. You know, occasionally there'll be a re-release or whatever. Um, but what we're really looking at is, say, if we were to think about it from a number of screen standpoint, the three of those screens would still be playing new art house films, right? New you know, the kind of Oscar award contender type films and foreign films and independent films and that sort of thing. But one of those at any given time will also be playing an older film. And so we'll have more calendar programming and we'll have more um, film events like we do at the Plaza with different community groups and companies and brands and whatever, where they partner and we co-present something that uh, uses the film as a launching point for conversation, as a launching point for engagement, uh, but isn't just a kind of run of the mill, we're going to go see this movie and then leave and go home. When you come, it should be an experience. I love that. I love that. Now, uh, right now, there is a campaign where people can go and help out in this effort. I already got my ticket vouchers. Thank you. Uh, so if you would, just kind of let people know, where can they go to help? Yeah. So we have a reopen campaign going on right now. And that's really just for the last little funds needed to take us over the finish line to at least just get it reopen, right? Nothing. We're not, we're not, you know, that's not huge, crazy transformations or anything. It's just all the equipment missing, all the decor missing, all the furnishings missing, because a lot, unfortunately, was taken out. Um, so the last $50,000 will take us over the finish line, and people can go to theterraatlanta.com and either pre-purchase gift cards or tickets, or if they feel so compelled, they can donate, and those donations are received through the Atlanta Film Societies to 501c3 nonprofit. Um, either way, those all those funds go towards helping the Terra get reopened, um, and then People can, you know, use those gift cards once we're open, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, and and this is just, I just want to jump in here that this is so important. I'm, I'm going to be doing a joint episode with the podcast Archive Atlanta soon, detailing the history of Atlanta's movie palaces. So many of them lost. It is so rare to have an opportunity to save one of these incredible buildings. And these things are real important community pillars. And the plaza is a testament to that. And the fact that we can take part in this effort is incredible. So please go out there, get your vouchers, donate, do whatever you can, because this is an incredible opportunity to retain a piece of Atlanta cinematic history. Yeah, unfortunately, it is a rare opportunity. I wish it wasn't. Um, you know, my, my friend David Mitchell at the Atlanta Preservation Center does a lot of amazing work trying to preserve our historic places. But Historic buildings in Atlanta are an endangered species. Yeah, I mean, there's that's the that's the sort of unfortunately downside to the the joking motto that the Atlanta bird is the crane. Um, I, I well, you know, that's true. I'm not I'm not anti progress in all in any and all instances, but I do think that uh, at a certain point there is a price that is a little too high when it's a historic building, especially one that means something to people around um, where their memories are still fresh. Right. I mean, that's that that sometimes that price is a little too high, and so um, it, it is it is an unfortunate thing. And I and I would offer that the real Atlanta bird is the phoenix, and that's why I'm happy that the tarot is gonna rise up <laughs> out of this closure. I love it. You know, I mean, that's one of the things that I love about you that I find so inspiring is you are a history lover, and as a history podcast here. I, I'm curious, you know, what um, What are some of the lessons and trends from film history that you feel have a particular impact on uh, the cinema's present and future? Yeah. So it's, you know, it's weird. Unless you start to dive into it, you know, it seems very linear and seems very 
stat, you know, static. And truth be told is, you know, film history is as dynamic and changing and cyclical and otherwise as American culture is at large. And uh, I did study film. My focus was more in film production, but had some film theory and history and criticism and aesthetics classes. And, and even in the little bit of training and education I had, you see kind of, you know, the first time that, you know, these major spectacle films, you know, what, what is now, uh, you know, superhero comic movies back in the day was Westerns and musicals, right? Those are the big, big spectacle movies. Um, you know, when you see these, you know, uh, natural disaster catastrophe movies. You you don't you know you can go back just a few decades and see that huge trend. But so it, it's interesting, and there's all kinds of um, publishings on on how what's happening in American life at large ends up reflecting and informing what kind of films are being made and what kind of films do well, and then that only feeds what kind of films then the system wants to make more of. But um, you know, unfortunately, what has happened is if you were to come to a movie theater, say in the 1930s or 40s or 50s, you um, let's let's say the 30s, you would either go to a movie theater owned by a studio like a Fox or a Paramount or a Lowe's, so it's MGM connected, yep. or you would go to a neighborhood theater that very likely is owned by an individual in your community or at least a company that's locally based. And that's not really true today, right? The vast majority of, of locations and screens are owned by a handful of companies. And so that ends up meaning that the choices that are being made are done by very few people um, that are generally white men, white, straight white, upper middle class, uh, you know, or upper class men. Um, so that ends up, unfortunately, you know, ends up homogenizing the choices that are that are made, right? And there's starting to be progress made on the studio side and the production company side, but um, but at the end of the day, some there's a person going, we're gonna show that movie and because we think we'll make money. And inherently, what somebody thinks will make money is gonna somehow be tied to who they are, what their experiences are. Sometimes they can divert from that when they've seen examples that are outside of their own experience and go, well, that movie made a lot of money, so maybe we'll probably make money on this one. So you know, I think it does matter not only from a representation standpoint, but it also matters from a free speech standpoint. Really, the first time in recent history that the plaza was in international news was related to the release of the movie The Interview, which, just to refresh everyone's memory, was the James Franco and Seth Rogen film that Sony got hacked for by uh, North Korean hackers, and all this information got released, and it just kind of put them in a whole tizzy. And so what happened was one of the chains decided they weren't going to show it. And that that basically pulled out at least one out of every three screens in America, right? Because one company said, never mind, we don't want to be involved. We don't want to be a target. And so then Sony was like, okay, we got we to gotta figure out what's going on. And so then they decided they were going to pull the whole movie altogether. And then in a kind of last uh, minute surprise, really three days before what was supposed to be the original release on Christmas Day, uh, the plot, the owner at the time, Michael Furlinger, um, was able to get confirmation that the Plaza was actually going to play this film after all, and and was the first to announce it on the planet, and that created a media frenzy, and because what ended up happening is now it's forget almost what the movie's about, now it's we have an international 
really antagonistic uh, uh, country dictating what gets said and seen and shown and shared by people in this country. Yeah. So it now became a matter of free speech and you know outside and interests interfering with that. And so it became much bigger than the movie. And so, um, so yeah, so the Plaza was first to get to announce it. It was this huge deal. And we were seeing you know, people buy tickets just to prove a point. It's like, you're not going to tell me what I can't watch, you know? Um, and so, you know, that's, uh, that's a perfect little example of why it's not a good idea for everything that is seen and shown publicly to be owned by just a few handful of, you know, mega corporations, some of which are not even primarily owned here. Right. So, you know, all, that's a huge, huge tangent with a very specific story to make me realize like, oh, here's a, here you go. You know, here's this, this is what could happen, actually. No, it's hu hugely important. And I think that these issues are only going to keep happening more in the very near future. Um, now, of course, you know, history is not just in the past. It's also being made right now uh, in the present. And there's a, a lot of hand wringing these days, people predicting the death of the cinema. And yet here you are with multiple independent movie theaters in your name without, you know, you've kind of touched upon this, but like without having to give away your secrets, I mean, what is the business model for a successful independent theater today? Yeah, I would say, you know, if I had a chain, if I was a mega chain, I'd be terrified right now. Uh, and that's because, you know, what they have banked their business model on doesn't exist anymore, which is, look, I'm the only one who has this movie. So if you want to see it, you're going to have to come see it through me. And basically generally doing as little as they can get away with. And that's true for the customer. It's true for the employee. Like how little can I pay you? Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, how replaceable can I make you? Um, all of that. Like that. the, the hell with all that. Um, no, yeah. Our business model here is first and foremost about creating an experience. That's not new. That's not proprietary. I didn't invent that. <laughs> it's just been so long since anyone's tried that, that it feels new, which yeah. is kind of sad, but it's working for us, right? Um, in some ways, it's sort of what happened with restaurants uh, twenty, you know, up until 20 years ago, where it was like, all of your choices were Olive Garden, Applebee's, and Red Lobster, which not to knock those, but like if that were literally the only thing you could ever go out and eat, that would be, and did become rather boring. Right. And we're now seeing this beautiful resurgence of chef-driven restaurants and locally owned restaurants and mom, you know, like that's, you know, people are now embracing that and valuing that. And I feel like that's actually what's ahead for cinemas. And I'm not the first to say that. Um, I've been saying it for a few years. Quentin Tarantino is probably the first one to say it and be heard the most. Sure. Um, owning the new Beverly and now he has another location. Yeah. But I think the future is actually quite bright for art house and especially locally owned and operated art houses, be they historic or not, right? My, my, uh, my uh, flavor and brand, my type is definitely a theater that comes with its own stories to begin with. Cause I feel like that adds to the experience. You can't, you can't make this. No, you can't just, you know, you can't build it. There is, um, and, and even a historic, a historic theater, the look is only part of it. It's it's the the memories people have that they share that they sort of like that that freshness of oh that was where I went on my first date with my significant other or that was the first place I saw a movie forty years ago or that was when I was introduced to this character that is you know my idol um, 
you know, that can be true a lot of places, but for that to be true generationally, it's only true in a historic place. That emotional experience is so real. You know, I always, I like to think of like, why do people often uh, put ghosts in theaters or imagine ghosts in theaters or, or we have believe, believe there are ghosts we in theaters? We definitely do. Really? We definitely do. <laughs> we've and we've actually this has been in broadcast before because I I did you know I was one time I was like look, maybe there's ghosts anywhere maybe there isn't I don't know I've never seen enough evidence to say for sure there is or isn't pretty kind of agnostic about it yeah and then um, local radio station the Burt Show uh, they do this thing annually where they send paranormal investigators to different places <laughs> and I was like hey if you want to send somebody here I'm I've always been curious people have said that there's ghosts here but I've never fully known. And then, um, and they were here and the evidence that they found was indisputable. And they came back again, um, just on their own. And, and keep in mind, like, I'm not paying these people. Yeah. You know, and the, even the second time, they, I'm sure the Bird Show was maybe paying them something, but second time they came was on their own. It was for no one's benefit other than their own curiosity. Because they, after what they found, they were like, we really need to come back <laughs> and spend more time. What did they so, find? I mean, at large, we had, um, I think the first time was maybe five or six and the second time was maybe the same number of spirits, presences, energies, whatever you want to call them um, here. Some of them were the same across both times. Some of them were only at one of those visits or the other. And um, and the, the fascinating thing to me was, because the first time I was too chicken shit to, I stayed in the front lobby. All, this is overnight, <laughs> keep in mind, right? Okay. And it's overnight so that essentially... You know, and and of course, there's plenty of people who know more about this than me. But essentially, the idea is like the energy, the frequencies. Like when things calm down, it's a little easier to interact with them and detect them. It's not like they only come out at night, but it's like they kind of get drowned out, right? If they were simply, if they were an energy source, there's more radiation happening when there's lots of things going on. So it's like when things calm down, their energy source is a little more detectable, right? So, okay. so when they started to explain it to me a little bit more scientifically. Um, I started to be like, okay, maybe I can buy some of this. Um, <laughs> but I, but I was also, uh, a little too, yeah, I sort of at least believed it enough to be like, yeah, I'm just gonna hang out in the front lobby. Y'all let me know if you need me. <laughs> but when I heard everything that they got in the recordings, when I'd seen some of the photos, when I'd seen and how they triangulate all their methods, it's not just like based on one method. I was like, holy cow. So when they came back the second time, I was like, okay, I'm going with you. And I was still freaked out until we started making contact. And then the most bizarre thing to me was how normal it felt. That it was essentially just a really long distance phone call. And I was just talking to a person. I wasn't talking to some supernatural being. It was like someone in another state of being. And, and then we were being able to ask them very regular questions. We were able to ask them their names. We were able to ask them, did they die here? Because that was a concern of mine. We were able to ask them, <laughs> do they need anything? Do they want anything done? Do they need any help? And generally, like, all was like, no, no, I'm fine. Like I said, none of them had died. None of the ones we had talked to had ever died here. None of them needed anything. They were just here because they wanted to be. And it's like, honestly, if you were to sort of think about it rather simplistically, like if you woke up in some state uh, of existence, and you weren't sure where you were and very few of the places you remember when you were alive are around anymore that kind of narrows it down and so and if you came here when you were alive on purpose right and you paid money just to be here probably enjoyed it right you probably had some good memories here so when you think about it like that right sort of rather just plainly simply kind of makes sense Wow. I'm getting goosebumps over here across the table. That's cool. I love that. Uh, I'm going to changing uh, track just a little bit. You started off getting your bachelor's degree in film and video at Georgia State right here in downtown Atlanta. 
What did you want to do when you started off in that major? Well, I still want to make films. <laughs> I um, I keep having these tangents, um, and I ha- and I did I, I I made I made content for clients. I did make a few of my own films that have not really seen the light of day, um, but um, I, I I I had a professional career in making content for nonprofits and companies and all that you know documentary style what have you. Um, and I ended up kind of coming across a, a need. I was really had sort of a calling to get involved with the Atlanta Film Society, which very, very shortly after we got involved with the Plaza Theater to keep it from closing. And everything has kind of been a means to an end, sort of, you know, my, my purchasing the Plaza was to protect the interest that the Film Society had in the Plaza. We had really kind of saved each other but now at, at by you know 6 years in the film society had a lot of sort of brand equity sweat equity vested interest in and and relied on its relationship with the plaza to do, not only do the film festival but do its year round programming and i couldn't see somebody you know i couldn't let somebody else buy it and possibly compromise that and really my purchase of the terra aside from my own interest in the terra itself and what business opportunity that represents also will benefit the plaza at large, which will benefit the Atlanta Film Society at large, because these things working together, um, helping create more of a cinema culture, which people, you know, so many people rightly say on, on online forums and threads, like, I miss George LaFont. And part of that is because he helped Atlanta maintain its cinematic diet. Right. And and eat healthier, if I can use that analogy. Yeah. And um, we've not been eating that well. <laughs> and and it's far more beyond just what films you watch because that's the thing at the end of the day is that's part of I think what what the chains get wrong it's not just about have a giant screen and sound and plush seats if that was all there was to it and having being the one who has the copy to it had the copy of the film you can't watch it at home the vast majority of the tickets we sell at the plaza theater people can watch those movies at home right so why do they come here and pay us money anyway because there's more to it than that Right, and it's it's not only all of those technical things; it's being in a space that means something. It's undivided attention, which let's be honest, I watch movies at home just like anybody else. But you're not gonna you you let yourself get distracted when you watch something at home, right? Either on purpose or not on purpose. Here you can have undivided attention. There is also something to the extent of not only watching with people you know, but watching a film with people you don't know, creates this liveness that is the closest thing we have in cinema to a concert. And, 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 and laughing and crying and reacting together makes that movie come alive in a way that that's the closest thing cinema has to live theater. So you can watch the same title at home, but you're not gonna have that same experience. I don't care how big your screen is. Uh, I, I watch movies here by myself when I need to. That's not the same. And it's the same screen. It's the same seats, the same sound. Not watching it with other people and not having the sort of peer pressure of, you can't take your phone out, can't just get up and come back, right? Because admittedly, sometimes when I'm screening something here, if I have to pause the movie, I'll go and pause the movie. <laughs> <laughs> but that's why it's not the same, right? So that's, that's you know, I've been able to, you know, control an experiment group that right? Literally the exact same setting. The difference is there aren't other people here. And that's what makes it better. 
And so when it's got to be all those things together. And then you add to that, you know, what you're eating and drinking. You add to that the experience of the building at large outside of the auditorium. Like all of that together makes the experience. It's not one gimmick. And that's the problem the chains have always had is they're always looking for the one gimmick. Right. What's the one thing I can spend money on right now? And then that'll carry me over until I have to find the next gimmick. Yeah. Right. We, um, when the pandemic hit, even before all the mandatory closures, all the chains laid off everyone. They're like, there's not enough people coming. Go home. We hope this uh, unemployment thing works out for you. We didn't lay off anyone. We kept everybody on. Right now, our policy is whatever our standard movie ticket is, that's where we start our pay. So it's standard tickets, $15, right? So that's where we start our pay. I don't try and pay people as little as I can get away with, right? And, and my staff also makes very decent money on gratuity. People don't get gratuity working at other chains, right? Now, I don't, I don't do that because I'm some sort of philanthropist, right? I, look the, I do that because I'm looking at the bigger picture, right? And the bigger picture from a business case, if I just want to look at that coldly, is the happier my staff is, the more they care, the longer they stay, the better they are going to be when they interact with the customers and make recommendations and develop that rapport, right? That's the longer, I'm not looking at what's this quarter, Right, which any publicly traded company just cares about the returns on a quarter. I'm looking at what does that mean for this year and five years and 10 years. If, if I own this theater for another 25 years, I still won't be old enough to retire. And that's how far I'm looking, right? That's, I, I care about things that, okay, why, why, have they still been, why have they been around this long? What have let these things beat the odds when this theater opened in 39? at had 100 counterparts and it's the last one. Why? what happened, right? And it's not one thing. It's different people interceding. In some ways, it's because it sort of kept its head down <laughs> and, and didn't become a target for redevelopment or whatever. But there are instances where human beings who live here took a real risk and a shot. Uh, and so that's you know part of the holistic experience, right? What are, what's, not, what's not the one thing I can do? What is everything I can do? And making sure that I'm not leaving anything on the table without overextending ourselves, right? And if there's something we can't do right now, how soon can we do that thing? That's, that's what we're thinking about. That's the secret sauce. So I would be remiss if I didn't bring up, so a, a few weeks ago, uh, there was a special event here uh, that I was uh, fortunate enough to get a last minute text. Uh, actually, our mutual friend, Ken Double, who was on this show as an interview, he, text, he called me at, uh, at about like 9.30 at night. I just put my kid to bed. That's why I have a rough idea of when. He calls me and he says, and uh, as you, if you've listened to the episode with Ken, you know he has this great announcer voice. So he goes, he was one. Yeah, right. So he goes, he goes, Aaron, where are you, and what are you doing? <laughs> That's a good Ken Dillon impression. <laughs> and uh, I'm in, I'm in my bed, like doing some work. I think I was prepping another interview. I said, well, you know, I'm reading this book. He says, you need to get down here. I am playing the organ, and Francis Ford Coppola is here. <laughs> get down to the plaza right now. <laughs> And so I went out, you know, uh, went out to my wife, said, hey, is it okay if I just go to this movie theater? She was like, go, what are you do? What are you even talking to me for? Hop in my car, I get down here, and sure enough, you guys were hosting a screening of Bram Stoker's Dracula for the entire Megalopolis crew, a, a and bunch of the Megalopolis yeah, crew. It was like 60 or 70 of them, yeah. And, uh, and uh, Francis Ford Coppola is here, uh, uh, Roman Coppola is here, and in that Eleanor event, Coppola. and Eleanor Coppola was here, of course. And in that event, you, you shared a story about 
how um, it was actually hit, uh, Francis Ford Coppola coming to Georgia State that kind of planted a seed in your brain about theater ownership. I, I would love yeah. if you could share that story with us. And more specifically, it was at the Rialto, right? So again, another historic cinema, and I'm on the board of the Rialto. Um, yeah. So yeah, I mean, uh, so the story goes, um, Francis Ford Coppola was making really his first film in a long time. And he was uh, he was making Youth Without Youth. And his wife, Eleanor, uh, was making a documentary, as she has done many documentaries in the past, but this being another one centered around him, about his first time making a film, his film, in 30 years. And what that just means as a, you know, as a creative, uh, as an aging person, someone who kind of has his own big shoes to fill. Um, and he showed, he picked two schools in the country, one on the West Coast and on the East Coast, it was Georgia State University. And it wasn't even color corrected. This was a picture lock. So we were almost like a, a test audience of 800 people, 833 people. And it was packed. And I was a undergrad film student and we just, you know, ate up this documentary. And then afterwards he was going to do a conversation with. And uh, Jack Boozer, who was a, a screenwriting professor at Georgia State, led a discussion with him for some time, and then they opened up for questions. And I was very lucky enough to be the first very eager film student to ask the first question. And I, and the question I asked him changed my life. I asked him, first it was more as a filmmaker. I said, when I'm watching a Francis Ford Coppola movie, I'm, I know I'm watching a Francis Ford Coppola movie. You have such a distinct style what advice would you give a young filmmaker of what we need to do to find our own style? And so then he went into this almost like six minute answer. I, I, I felt like I'm still getting to stand here and talk to and listen to Francis Ford Coppola. I was like frozen. And uh, one of the things he touched, he talked about was how important theater, live theater is to him. And, and it was in his, in his creative upbringing. And I got to experience that a little bit more talking to him privately. And I mean, the, like what he knows about, the theater scene in Buenos Aires, Argentina, is just like, <laughs> okay, you're for real. You're for real. <laughs> okay. So, um, but yeah, so that's, you know, so he said, I feel like every filmmaker should have a footing in theater. And so the next morning I declared a theater minor. And obviously I'm, I'm using the term theater at large here, but, you know, that that going, okay, that's important. That That public gathering is important. I started getting involved in community theater. I mean, I'd done like you know, musicals and stuff like that in high school. And I, but I felt like that was sort of the end of it for me. And so I started finding other ways to, to get involved. It was part of what got me involved with the Rialto, which precedes my ownership of the Plaza Theater. And so like all of these things are, are sort of nudges in that direction that create and instill values and interest in things that has kind of led me to, to be here. It's beautiful. Uh, it's just just really incredible. Now, I feel I fear that I have buried the lead here because we are about to, uh, of course, the Atlanta Film Society, which you are the executive director of, uh, hosts the Atlanta Film Festival. And we are about to have the 47th Atlanta Film Festival and Creative Conference, which will be taking place uh, here at the Plaza as well as around town from April 20th to the 30th. Now, I had the immense honor of serving as a volunteer screener for the feature films this year. And so I'm uh, waiting right now excitedly to see if some of my like favorite picks uh, made made the final cut that's a, here. That's a tough job. Yeah. <laughs> because it's, for people who don't know, we get 10,000 submissions of films and screenplays. We're talking about 8,000 films. Everything gets seen multiple times. And anyone can submit. That's the beauty of it. But it also means anyone submits. Oh, yeah. <laughs> 
And as a screener, you end up watching a lot of terrible things. And then and then occasionally you come across some really awesome things. But honestly, even if we were to accept everything that's pretty great, it's still going to be like 10 times as many films as we can play. So it goes from being difficult because it's like, God, these are terrible, to then being difficult because then you have a bunch of these films you're in love with, and how do I narrow it down? It's definitely a, it's almost the same conundrum that filmmakers are faced with in editing their film, and you know, the term, kill your darlings. We have to, you know, our programming team has to do that and narrowing it down to the 150 we can show, so. Oh, it's, it's such a task. Now, I've been to a fair amount of film festivals, and Atlanta really seems to balance this, this grassroots inclusivity with the glamour and prestige of an Academy Award qualifying festival, which it is. How do you all maintain that balance? Well, I will say, you know, it's, it is a, it's a big group effort. I mean, it, and, that's, and that's a lot of conversations around the balance of indie and industry. And we're sort of lucky enough that there's such a healthy, large industry here in Georgia that we can have big titles and that doesn't feel like selling out because it's ultimately serving the interest of supporting the local film industry. Um, even if it's a, ma a big studio film, right? So, but we have a lot of conversation about that and, and that we first and foremost exist to create a point of discovery spotlight and showcase to unknown filmmakers and help audiences discover artists that they don't know and actors they don't know. And, um, but we use these, uh, these titles that are with more known and familiar, you know, we call them our marquee titles. If you were to think of us as a music festival, it's sort of our headliner for the day you know, so those are sort of our gateway films. Like those are the films the audience uh, recognizes, sees, and comes, and maybe gets a little bit more press attention. And we use that as the as the means of getting people to the festival and in, and aware of the festival. But it really only represents ten percent of our programming. The vast majority of the programming is is films that come from submissions that are lar by largely unknown um, artists, but that are phenomenal for a variety of reasons and from around the world. Uh, and across genres. What would you say to sort of a non-film industry person, just a regular Atlanta resident, to why they should come out to this year's Atlanta Film Festival? So for one, so I use the analogy for people that if you were to sort of think of the Oscars as the Olympics of film, and well, before you can go compete at the Olympics, you have to win at some sort of qualifying type event. So that's what we are, is we're a qualifying festival for actually three of the categories that you can qualify through a film festival, which is live action, short animation, short documentary, short subject. What that means is some of the most incredible filmmaking, especially because most of the innovative stuff happens at the short film level, we're showing that. And they're vying for this competition to go and compete. We actually had a film uh, just recently nominated for an Oscar after qualifying through us, which is a huge feat. So, uh, you know, a film festival, if you were to, you know, think of it as a music festival, as I referenced earlier, this would be like every genre of music <laughs> from classical to death metal to hip hop to, you know, uh, drum and bass, like all of it. <laughs> and you can go and you can go for the whole thing. You could also just go, I just want to go to the jazz events, right? So we have people who just come to our documentary programming or just come to our horror programming or just come to our short film programming. So there are kind of ways where you, if you want to be hyper-focused, you can. Um, but essentially, it's a lot of screenings happening in pro both time proximity and physical proximity to each other. We're usually showing up to three or four things at once. And uh, some of the, my favorite ways to watch a film at all 
is unique at a film festival because you can sort of walk in blind knowing almost nothing about it and let the film tell you what the film is about rather than coming in with preconceived notions. And then not only do you get to experience these amazing films, but it's with people who are ex really excited to see film. And that, which again, goes back to why the shared experience is so important. But then a lot of times we get to have the filmmaker here and you can hear it's, you know, almost live behind the scenes or commentary, you know, there's, there's Q and A's and discussions. And so you get to hear a little bit more. And so it's like, you really get to sink your teeth into this medium that we all experience so often and frequently in our regular daily lives throughout the year. And yet you don't think about how distant you are from it. You rarely ever get to meet the person who makes it right. And, and talk to them and, and you rarely get to talk to other people about what they thought and what did this mean? Right? That's some of the most fascinating things is the continuing interpretation where that film is continuing in people's head after the screening is over. And those discussions start to happen and friendships start to happen and connections. Like that's, that's a really cool, fun thing about it. That's, what, that's the festival part, right? Where you're sharing in that together with other people and, and you're not only discovering these stories and discovering these artists, but our approach is you're discovering these places too. Like we intentionally don't do these in what would be very convenient venues, you know, that are, you know, that make it e tech, you know, logistically easily, but don't mean anything to anyone. We are in these places that come with stories of their own. And so if you're an out of towner, this is a carefully edited presentation of some of our favorite parts of Atlanta that tie in with the stories we're showing. And if you're an Atlantan, hopefully we're helping you make hope help. Hopefully we're helping you feel like a tourist in your own town. And if it's either for the screenings or for the conference educational sessions that are on the art and craft and business of film and television or our social events, uh, that all of that really melds. And we're starting to get to the point just 40 something years into the mix where people are now going, I took the whole week off and I'm, and I'm here for the Atlanta film. They're sort of on vac a staycation at home. And, uh, and I'm, and I'm going to, you know, two or three films a day, and then I'm going to go to this party or go to this hangout or go to this, um, that when people really dive into it and take it in like that, that's when you really sort of get the full experience. And you see that even though you might go to the movies all the time and watch movies at home, it's a next level. Oh, and yeah. that's true for most, most film festivals. There is something extra special, uh, about, about experiencing film through a film festival. And we are so lucky to have just this incredible festival right here in our backyard. Chris, I know you got to run, so I'm going to wrap it up here. I just want to thank you. First of all, I really want to say just personally, but I think I speak for a lot of other Atlantans, whether they know it or not, just thank you for all the work that you're doing. You make me proud to be an ATLian cinephile, and the stuff that you are doing makes me want to stay here and makes me proud to stay here. So thank you from the bottom of my heart for everything that you've done for this community. Wow, that's um, that's incredibly touching. Thank you to say that. Thank okay. you for saying that. And I will say, you know, it's um, it's my job to give people a reason to come. My job and, and our team at large's job to give people a reason to come. But, you know, it's important that at the end of the day, if there are places that matter to us to continue to exist, and I'm not just talking about movie theaters, you know, it could be, it could be concert venues, it could be restaurants, it could be whatever. It can't just, you can't just like for it to be there in the background. You got to participate some way or another, right? And that might be, ideally, it's going and patronizing it on a regular basis and buying tickets. It might be occasionally you donate, you know, buy a ticket if you can't go. At minimum, it's it's giving it your attention, right? At least online. Like that's the sort of the least thing you can do. But we've got to participate in our places, in our community, because that's what makes these places special is the community's participation in the first place. And we can't let that age. 
that has to stay fresh. So don't take it for granted, y'all. Get out there. Go to your local cinema. See a movie and get involved. Thank you so much for joining us. And until next time, that's a wrap. Now everybody loves the carnival. Yeah, Lord is a decent bacchanal. Creole Bacchanal.